there, dog people of the internet. It's me, Sarah Strumming of the Cognitive Canine, and this is called Dog Radio, a podcast about all things dog sports and dog training. Join me as I explore my cases and considerations regarding the behavior of the dogs we live and play with. I hope you enjoy it. everybody i just wanted to take a minute before your podcast starts to talk about something very important to me black lives matter i sarah strumming am committed to anti-racism and the companies that i oversee the cognitive canine and cogdog radio are also committed to anti-racism i recognize my privilege here and i recognize that i have a platform where i can use my voice and i intend to do so in such a way that combats systemic racism because it absolutely affects the field of dog training and it's time that everybody with a platform uses it for good. I'm gonna link a list of resources for ways that you can support black, indigenous, and people of color and also just some educational resources that I've found helpful in my anti-racism journey And I hope that we can all stand together to dismantle racism in dog training and therefore in the world. Cheers. Hey guys, I'm doing a new program that I'm calling Wednesday Night Chats. This is a Facebook Live that'll be happening every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific on my business page, which is on Facebook. It is facebook.com slash thecognitivecanine. I hope that you'll join me over there. We're going to be talking about basically all things what to do with dogs in a pandemic. How do we prepare our dogs for when our lives go back to normal? How do we socialize puppies right now? And if we can't get out to do a decompression walk, what are we supposed to do? So join me over there. It's a free program, but I am accepting donations for it. All the details will be included each week. So that's facebook.com slash the cognitive canine Wednesday nights at 5 p.m. See you there. Hey friends, I have a case study for you. I know case studies tend to be some of the most popular episodes. They are also the most work for me. (laughs) So that's why they're a little bit few and far between. As well as just respecting the privacy of my clients. A lot of my clients do not want to be a case study. And that's something that I 100% respect. But the client I'm going to talk about over the next three episodes Um, was really happy to be a case study. She's an educator herself, and so she was, you know, happy to share her dog's story. So this is the story of Jen, the human, and Tonic, the border collie. I first met Jen and Tonic in person at R Plus 2.0 camp in Denver um, in December of 2019. And when Jen walked in with Tonic, I could immediately see that this dog needed a lot of help. And really through no fault of Jen, I mean, she was really doing her best, trying to support him, trying to do everything right in that environment. And he was nuts, to put it, you know, plainly big, huge pupils, um, heavy panting with really tense commissure. So that's the corners of the mouth. So kind of his mouth was pulled back into like an open grimace, 
panting heavily, even though we're talking Colorado in December. And um, I'm going to tell you right now, it was not warm. Um, some vocalizing, kind of frantic looking back and forth, um, just looking all over the place. The way that I tend to work dogs in workshops is one at a time. I typically do not have more than one dog out at a time, and that's to help me to pay attention to exactly what I need to pay attention to in that moment, which is this dog and handler. And it's also to help the dog to, to pay attention to exactly what he has to pay attention to, right? And not 20 million other things. So when I introduce other dogs in workshops, it's on purpose and strategically to help a dog maybe work through an issue. But I just had an audience and then Jen and Tonic right in front of me. And the audience was small, maybe 10 or 15 people. And then the room was split in half. So there was another working team um, with my colleague, Amy Cook, on the other side of the barrier. And so there was a lot going on in the room, but it wasn't, you know, a typical like, you know, don't imagine that he walked in with 10 other dogs on the floor. He didn't. But he was still just darting his eyes all over the place. He could not focus. He could not pay attention to one thing. Jen had food. She had toys. Um, as far as the food went... He would either refuse it or snatch at it and um, chipmunk it or spit it out. He jumped at her multiple times. So he jumped, you know, at her face with his face multiple times, which is always a huge red flag for me. When dogs take their face directly at a human's face, especially when they need to go vertical to do it, I read that as a kind of abnormal expulsion of energy that the dogs got. And I know that's kind of, that's very constructy. Um, but the best way that I can describe it, because I can't actually ask these dogs what's going on in their head, but the dogs that I see do it are dogs that are experiencing usually pretty high levels of discomfort and having a lot of other behaviors that I can recognize and can unpack to tell me that they're uncomfortable and she had also told me that he was having diarrhea and that he also vomited on the way into the building so we're talking about a dog who is in GI distress and other kinds of distress cannot eat so we are clearly in um, a state with our nervous system that makes the entire GI functioning kind of go haywire meaning no more nutrition can come in and we're going to expel the nutrition that's in here because we can't digest right now and jen had these great marker cues in place she had some good training in place she had audited my worked up class so she was familiar with that protocol but when the dog is in such a state like that Nothing is going to work. You have to get them out of that environment because they can't think and function where they are. She worked um, with myself and also Shade. I'm not sure if she worked with Amy at all with Tonic um, at the camp. So it was, I'm sorry, the camp was myself, Amy Cook and Shade Whitesell, all hosted by Megan Foster. And we hope to do more of those camps. We had planned to do more of those camps, but a little thing called COVID happened instead. Um, but anyway, back to Tonic. Jen, when she pulled out a toy, Tonic would zero in on her a little bit more. 
But his attention was still clearly split. His ears were still flicking elsewhere. He was still glancing elsewhere. He was still whining. Um, he was still punching at her face with his face. And he could not be still either. So tapping, tapping his little feet, tap dancing, moving around. So the toy mattered more to him than food, which is just so common, you guys, especially for these working dogs. But still couldn't bring him into a place of zen and saying, I know how to earn that toy, right? So Jen and I had some good email discussions after camp, and we decided to enroll her in private coaching with me online. We worked together for six months, and Tonic is, I'll just tell you the spoiler, he's a huge success story. Um, and I think that a lot of things went into his success, and we'll get into a lot of those different things, but I think it's just a, a fascinating behavior case. And so in this episode, I'm going to go through the four steps to behavioral wellness and what we did to make sure that Tonic had all of those things. In the next episode, we'll get into the nitty gritty of the behavior modification pieces. And then the final episode will be an interview with Jen so that she can tell you about the process um, from her point of view. So let's dive into the four steps for Tonic. Tonic um, was all honestly already being taken care of really, really well. Jen is a fantastic owner and he's also a great dog. He was not in any way, shape or form neurotic or struggling in his home environment. And that tells you a lot about just kind of the stability of the dog's temperament is how they are um, in those non, you know, really difficult environments. So non really difficult is a great description, Sarah. Um, <laughs> in those in those easier times, I think a lot of times we see who the dog is capable of being if they're struggling even when times are easy or should be easy. We have more work to do. One of the early things that Jen and I discussed um, was actually whether or not neutering tonic was a good idea. She was planning on, you know, waiting till he was a two-year-old or older to do it, if doing it at all um, made sense. And we talked about it because he's got really big dog feelings, um, which, as we'll get into in the next episode, is actually, in my opinion, the basis for a lot of that tension that he was experiencing in that environment um, and other environments like it. So she did wind up having him neutered and that pretty much improved one thing, which was his appetite. And that's pretty common. They tend to get hungrier when we remove the sex hormones, especially males. Um, and so when we talk about the nutrition piece, know that the only issues we had were a little bit of pickiness before neuter, but after neuter, none. And then GI distress whenever he was in difficult situations. So as I described, vomiting and diarrhea if he was in really difficult situations. And let me just sing it from the rooftops, you guys. That's not normal. Okay, so if your dog has a bout of diarrhea every time you go to a dog show, you got to address that. That is about the stress that that dog show is putting on your dog. 
it's not fair to them to put them through that every time. And so, and you're hearing little whines from my little project back there, Junebug, which I'll tell you all about at a later date. Um, <laughs> so understand that that GI distress was not okay and it was, but it was only, it was very specific to when she knew that she had overwhelmed him. So it felt manageable to her to avoid those overwhelming situations. And we knew that we were on a path to help him cope with those situations better anyway. So we really made very few changes nutrition wise because he was on a pre-made raw, he was eating well, I was really happy with everything he was eating and his only indicator that the nutrition wasn't working would be those GI events. But because we could pinpoint the source of those moments, we didn't worry about it. And it absolutely has improved. Enrichment, Jen was already doing a really great job here. Tonic was not eating from a bowl ever. He was eating from puzzles all the time. And he was getting a lot of food-based and chewing enrichment just in his day-to-day. -day. Jen has another Border Collie named Nickleby who was also getting all of those things. Like she was used to taking care of these busy minds in her house by providing them with thoughtful feeding uh, regimens. So we really didn't make any major changes there either. Um, communication, I'll end on exercise because that's the interesting one for tonic. So communication also, you guys, Jen's doing a great job. No major changes were necessary. The one thing that we worked really hard on would be end of session signals. So in a training session, a lot of times dogs will get confused, upset, avoidy if they sense the end of the session is coming. And so we implemented a really clear end of session signal for tonic. So she would just say her end of session signal word and then go into her end of se session uh, ritual, which for tonic looked like letting him hang out with a toy um, if, it, if they had been working with a toy or just kind of doing a scatter if they were working with food. We did work on their communication as it pertains to exercise for sure. So let's dive into what we did to get Tonic out on decompression walks because this was my primary area of wellness concern for him. He's a young male Border Collie. He needs to move his body a lot and he wasn't really able to. Jen would try. Um, again, you guys, she was trying so hard to do everything right. But if she took him to an open area and took him off leash, he would just sprint. So he would just run for the hills. And he would run the entire time they were out there. He'd be in a full bore sprint, um, which isn't fun for the human that's attached. And then she'd have a really hard time getting him to get back in the car at the end. So it also didn't matter how long they were out there. She couldn't get him to come to her. She couldn't get him to put his leash on. She couldn't get him to get in the car. And the way that she wound up doing it, and this is, you guys, everybody does this, and it's the first thing we had to take care of, is she would try to trick him. Now, she wouldn't put it in those words, but once we kind of talked about it and I explained it, it she realized that she was tricking him. And she felt bad about that. Um, so she would kind of get her food out, show him her food. He'd come over for a treat. She'd leash him up, put him in the car. 
uh, or same thing, get a toy out, show him the toy. He'd come over, put him on a leash, put him in the car. As you can imagine, that didn't last very long before she had lost her dog approaching her at all. So she, all she had actually done was take cues for approach me and turn them into cues to be leashed up. And because leashing up was acting as a punisher, she punished those cues and she kind of lost it. So we she had produced a dog that would avoid her and would muzzle punch her face um, if he couldn't avoid her when it was time to get in the car. And I'm sure that she can give us a little bit more detail um, because she lived it. She knows it better than I do when she's on the podcast. But we had to fix this because this dog needs off-leash exercise. And he's got big feelings about other dogs, so neighborhood walks, not the best for him, not super effective. She did live on a green belt, but she would see a lot of problematic behaviors walking him on the green belt. Um, lots of diving into the harness, pulling everywhere, uh, might get upset about another dog. Like He just wasn't pleasant to walk on a leash or off. And so he wasn't getting enough exercise and she knew that he wasn't getting enough. The first thing we started doing was just putting a long line on him periodically during the walk and letting him drag it. And in fact, I believe in the beginning, we had him just drag a long line the entire time so that she could get him if she wanted to. And then what I wanted her to do is when it was time to get in the car, literally just reel him in by the long line and physically guide him to the car and put him in. It's hard sometimes for people to understand what I mean by if the dog doesn't have a choice, don't give them one. But this is a perfect example. He didn't have a choice of whether or not to get in the car, which means that she should not use her cues trained with positive reinforcement to tell him to get in the car. If your dog doesn't want to do a thing and you know it, don't ask them to do it. Just make it happen. I am not asking you to be violent or um, overly forceful. I'm asking you to handle your dog in such a way that indicates to them that you're not asking and that this isn't about food. This is just about one of those moments that humans and dogs happen to have. So she would reel him in on the long line and simply put him in the car when it was time to go home. And in the meantime, she would allow him to sprint to his heart's content. She was able to arrange for an open space um, that she could go use for this, which is fantastic. And the woman went out, you guys, she went out in the sleet and rain and snow and wind and all manner of awful conditions. Um, but she stopped tricking him. She stopped fighting him. She started having him just drag a long line periodically. So when we transitioned off of using the long line for the entirety of the walk, He'd just have it on sometimes and off sometimes. And she would also do bypasses by the car. Like they would loop back towards the car and then keep hiking. And when she gave no indication that it was time to get in the car, eventually he started to go, oh, we're just looping past the car. Whereas in the beginning, he'd get extremely agitated and run away. Or if he couldn't run away because he was on the line, um, jump at her face when they started to get close to the car. So that conflict that was developed over, over the exercise ending was really troubling for them. But as soon as he was satiated, so as soon as he actually started to have his exercise needs fully met, 
all this stuff started to get better, you guys. He stopped sprinting. He started to just walk like a normal dog in the fields. He was, he looked like, you know, one of my dogs on a decompression walk. He's like, oh yeah, these are decompression walks. I get these. It's a great part of my life, right? Rather than um, what I might expect, which is what he was doing in the first place, which is, oh my God, freedom. I'm going to run as hard as I possibly can until I'm going to pass out. She also at home built up some good reinforcement history for her recall and for putting the leash on as well and started to pay him for just checking in periodically on the walk. And she would stop and she'd do, you know, food scatter for maybe her and her friend's dogs and she'd feed, you know, just give him some cookies and then everybody would keep walking. So to just take the pressure out of that entire situation was really important for us. And so understand that when these decompression walks, when that type of exercise was finally made regularly available, tonic changed. So I want you to think for a second that you have been starving. I want you to think for a second that maybe uh, you were on one of those TV shows where they drop you in the wilderness and you're expected to survive for as long as you can um, or something like that. And you're clinically starving. And you get picked up and you get cleaned up and then they take you to a Las Vegas buffet. I think you're, you're going to act a little crazy when you first get there. You're going to act a little crazy because you're actually starving. And you're probably going to continue to act a little crazy around food until your body decides it's no longer starving. And these dogs, you guys, their body thinks they're starving. They're starving of the kind of freedom of movement that dogs actually do require. And until their body and their mind are convinced that they will no longer be starved, you will continue to see those problematic behaviors. Jen took that advice so seriously. Um, this is when I knew we were gonna have success, was when I said, I need you to trust me, he is going to sprint and he is going to be insane and he is not gonna look normal on your walks for a while. I said, you just have to keep doing it. You will see him change. I said, trust me. It was a trust me moment. She believed me. She trusted me. She did the work. And you guys, this dog transformed. He transformed to this wild, frantic, sprinting beast to a dog that can trot down a trail and stop and sniff and truly, truly decompress. So I get a lot of emails, a lot of Patreon questions regarding you know, my dog is crazy on decompression walks. Decompression walks make my dog crazy. So what am I supposed to do instead? You're supposed to decompression walk them more is what you're supposed to do. Um, barring, you know, the fact that they're crazy being about maybe other dogs or something, you are, you need to give them more. They don't have enough. You're letting them go to the Vegas buffet once a month, but you're not feeding them any other day of the month. Okay, that's what's going on here. And... It was a really amazing transformation and it was a good lesson in a rule which is that deprivation produces desperation and desperate behaviors are never good behaviors, right? So desperate behaviors are never behaviors that we are after or that we wanna foster. I'm gonna say in any species. So once he was no longer deprived, he walked really beautifully. 
So to recap, you guys, we're talking about Tonic. He's a Border Collie. And he lost his mind at our plus 2.0 camp. And that was pretty normal for him in that kind of environment. And Jen, this is problematic because this human Jen wants to do dog sports with him. He wants, she wants to do disc. She wants to do agility. She can't attend camps, classes, workshops without him being like this. And so, and I wanted her to get to that goal because I knew that he could be a nice sport dog for her. I know a lot of dogs he's related to. I really thought we could achieve this. And so we started to dive in. And I hope you will join me next time to talk about the nitty gritty of the behavior modification we did for um, both Tonic's kind of seemingly, seemingly over arousal type of problems and also his negative feelings or just problematic feelings about other dogs. And I hope to um, have you with me then. And a few Patreon questions for y'all. This first one comes from Marlies. They say, effective ways to deal with barrier issues, please. My three-year-old Aussie girl still gets very triggered whenever I go near slash through any of my sliding glass doors onto the deck, which leads down to the yard where I used to train but don't anymore because of this, or through the front door and to the far front corner of the yard to check the mail. It is maddening and jarring and unpleasant, and of course, creating helps, but gee, I'd like to work with her again and not be barked at with dilated eyes just for hanging up my laundry out of the deck. She gets way too aroused. Thanks. Okay, so when you said triggered, I wasn't totally sure what you meant, but I think you explained it later um, when you said that you're being barked at and that her eyes are dilated. So that's about all I know about the behavior um, is that you're being barked at and that her pupils are dilated, which certainly indicates a big response. Um, my suggestion is that you actively train her to do something else. Stop trying to kind of decide or figure out why she's doing it and train her to do something else. Especially with the back door where you used to go train there. That's probably where this started and it was probably about excitement to go train. That's just kind of my guess. Obviously, I haven't seen this behavior, so I don't actually know. Um, but I would start there and I would start by asking her to station and opening the door and eventually she gets to be released out of the door off of her station to go train but you need to start really really small like ask her to station like touch the back door ask her to station feed release touch the back door ask her to station feed release and if even that is too hard don't touch the door at all just work on a solid station behavior near that door good luck let me know um, how it's going over in patreon Next one is from Jan. It's a fabulous question. It's a little bit long, um, but I think you need to hear the whole thing. It starts out, I was listening to Hannah Brannigan's interview with Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz on her podcast. And you guys, if you have not heard that podcast yet, go check it out. I will link it for you in the show notes. Um, back to Jan's question. He said something that I would like to hear your opinion on um, or your experience. He said something along the lines, when trainers employ counter conditioning, they are randomly selecting some behavior without realizing it. And that is why it takes longer to get results with counter conditioning. He also said that they have no scientific evidence it takes longer, but anecdotally, that is what is consistently reported by trainers. I was always taught that you use counter conditioning when you want to change the dog's feelings about something. I've used it successfully for some things and it has failed miserably for others. 
I have used it successfully with Luna to get her to not be scared when gunshots are going off in the distance during dove season. And I define success as she no longer cowers and instead looks to me for a treat with ears up instead. And it has failed miserably with Luna in trying to get her to let me cut her nails, although bodywork is supposed to be the textbook example for counterconditioning. In the Wednesday night chat about nails, I asked you about counterconditioning and you suggested I take an operant approach instead. I've gotten much further, much faster with that approach. So all of that to get to my questions, do you agree with Dr. Rosales Ruiz's assertion? Do you have any rules of thumb about when to apply counterconditioning versus operant conditioning? What types of problems are counterconditioning most effective for? Wow, Jan, awesome question. Something that is has been on my mind for probably the better part of the last three years. So I was really excited when I heard Hannah's interview with Dr. Rosales Ruiz. Um, number one, because two very intelligent people talking about something I'm interested in is like my jam. Um, but number two, because I always feel good when I get validated by somebody so smart as Dr. Jesus Rosales Ruiz. His assertion is exactly what I've been observing um, for quite a while and something that I've been discussing with colleagues for quite a while as well, which is that operant and classical conditioning do not exist on separate planes. They're both always happening all the time. And it is easier for us as trainers to select for behaviors than it is for us to try to throw food at a feeling and change that feeling. So when you are attempting to counter condition, say nails, the dog is still expected to behave. The dog is still expected to do a thing, namely allow you to clip a toenail or allow you to handle their foot, etc. And so you are smart to simply teach them to do that thing rather than try to change how they feel about that thing. And then if you are doing the best job you can by teaching them what to do, you also teach them to feel better. That's always my goal with body handling and nails is that a little bit of desensitization occurs, maybe some counter conditioning and definitely an operant response that helps me to do their nails better and more efficiently next time. And I'm really glad to hear that since kind of thinking about that project from an, through an operant lens, you're getting further faster. So then why was your attempt to counter condition Luna's responses to gunshots so effective? Well, most likely because the behavior that you were after looks a lot like the behavior that you got by doing whatever you were doing. So I'm going to argue you still utilized operant conditioning. You were looking at it through a classical conditioning lens and it worked in that instance because of the final acceptable behavior. And you said that your success, and thank you so much for defining your success. You said, I define success as she no longer cowers and instead looks to me for a treat with ears up instead. What is looking up to you with ears up expecting a treat, if not an operant behavior response? 
So that is an operant response to the cue of gunshots that you built by feeding her whenever there was a gunshot. You taught her to eat when she heard a gunshot. You did solve it with operant conditioning. You got, I hope and I think, some classical counter conditioning as a bonus to what you did. Versus toenails, just throwing food at the dog after cutting the nail does not engage the dog in a behavior that looks like doing nails. So I hope that makes sense. And if you guys want a full episode on this, um, I think that might be a really great idea. But your final question, what types of problems are for, you know, are, are counter conditioning most effective for? For me, I always look at everything through an operant lens these days. I look at everything through an operant lens, but I pay attention to, um, certainly I'm paying attention to my assumptions about how the dog is feeling about things, but I do try to take things from an operant lens and simply build my criteria for my operant behaviors slow enough that desensitization is also occurring in the meantime. So thank you, Jan, for such a fantastic question. I think we'll end there for this week. Thanks for listening. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe in the podcast app of your choice. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, being a part of the CogDoc Radio community, and getting access to all kinds of extras, head over to patreon.com slash cogdogradio to become a patron.